welcome to the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is the Out of the Park podcast series. We invite you to join us for other programming you can find on our website at www.franparkcenter.org. Join us. Welcome to the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life. This is our podcast series, Out of the Park. I am the Reverend Dr. Michael Hegeman, and the Associate Director of the Park Center, and Today, we are with Dr. Kyle Jensen, who is a professor of English and rhetoric at ASU and director of their writing programs. That's Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona. We are talking today about reading. Summer's coming up, and often folks come up with their summer reading plan, but we really wanted to think about what the place of reading in our lives, you know, as, as people who have a connection to faith, reading plays a deep part of the transition of faith, the the, um, the embodiment of faith. You know, there's so much that goes into reading. But we're going to take a step back from that for a moment and first just uh, talk a little bit about how how we became readers. So, Kyle, I'm gonna, that's the first question I'm going to pass your way. How did you become a reader? It's a really good question. I think I became a reader in large part because my mom wanted me to be a reader. She spent a lot of time in my early childhood reading books to me and in the process of doing so created characters while she was reading stories and I internalized that process and so I have a very early childhood memory of being a being identified in elementary school as a good reader and brought in to kind of mentor some of the younger students I think maybe I was in second or third grade there were some kindergarten students or first graders that were having a difficult time reading And I was identified as someone who could sit with them and read stories to them. And what I found in the process of doing that was that, number one, I actually really enjoyed that kind of collaboration. You could see how hearing stories and feeling the depth of characterization would help these students who didn't feel like they were particularly good at something feel like they were a part of it. Um, And I think the other thing, too, that it taught me was that reading can be a very powerful way of connecting people together who might not otherwise be brought together. And so it's probably not a surprise at all, given that kind of story that I became a teacher and now a professor and um, spent a lot of my time using books as an occasion to bring people together. Yeah, I think a very similar story uh, for me, that my mother was a teacher of English and of reading, specifically reading. And so growing up, I was the youngest child of four and uh, my mother read to us all, you know, and that was a sense of I, our house was full of books. And that's even to this day, when we think in our family, what to give as gifts, books are the number one thing. And even, you know, I've got, I've got 10 great, great nieces and nephews. And that's what we always think. What could they, oh, books, right? And that is to see somebody who was so connected and thought reading as so fundamental to education and actually to the growth in life, that my mother was instrumental in founding libraries in the South Pacific, you know, was where we were living. She went on book drives and she got people reading and she took me as the youngest child across the lagoons, these vast lagoons. It's not not like a Gilligan's Island lagoon. These were like two or three <laughs> miles across when we say lagoon uh, to another island where she taught English and reading. And so that was instilled in me as a as a young child. But I recognize in myself that I didn't become a reader. I mean, I could I read chapter. I mean, 
I read all kinds of things, but I don't consider myself having become somebody who was deeply engaged in reading until starting about the sixth grade. And this is when I read the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, for the first time. And I was caught up into other worlds. And uh, it was after that point, probably maybe different from you if you were mentoring others in reading, but I was. this was the introvert's answer to to uh, the, all the social awkwardness is, I'm just going to, I'll sit over here and read a book. You know, I think sometimes my family or family friends, they take me off on a fishing trip or something like that. It says, that's great. You guys go fishing. I'm going to sit here and read a book. Yeah. And that was, that was my happy place in the, in the midst of all that. So that's how I became a reader. And, you know, is what, you know, what pulled you, what was most formative, do you think, about reading for you? I think I was identified probably as a as a good reader early on in life, but say that there was a period from probably like fourth or fifth grade and upwards, even up into high school, where I was far more preoccupied with being a good athlete. So, Mike, you know this, that I played college basketball and um, really enjoyed that part of my life. And so much, there's a lot of sacrifice that gets me that you make in order to, you know, be successful in that domain. And I think part of it was reading in large part, because you know, this reading takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy, a lot of emotional and and mental energy. And I would come home from practices just feeling exhausted uh, in, in part because it's hard to play sports consistently year round, but also because I lived in the Pacific Northwest and I was constantly, I was, I had allergies as a child. So I was fatigued from all of the allergies but, you know, when I, I, I went to a different high school uh, my junior year, I went to Seattle Christian High School. I transferred, and I was a part of this class that was an honors English class. And we happened to be reading uh, as an assignment. We started with the Odyssey, but then we ended up reading Les Mis. And that reactivated for me something that I probably just had forgotten how important it was to me in my early childhood. And kind of set a trajectory for me. I think this is something that I think I want to do. I want to talk about the big ideas that appear in books and to view um, uh, writing and the written and the written word as something that's kind of formative to how we not only make sense of ourselves, but make sense of one another. And from that point on, I was a pretty active reader and all the way up into college and was an English major and kind of did the thing. I went kindergarten all through the way through PhD and, um, just kind of never really slowed down since then. And now to the even point now where I'm writing my own books. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, we hold in common then is just uh, when we see each other often, we say, hey, what are you reading? You know, and uh, have a nice exchange about, oh, this is what I'm reading. And then be able to kind of, oh, I'll read that too. So recently, just uh, we've read a couple of books in common. And uh, these the two I'm thinking of are ones that you suggested to me. And so... Uh, one of them has just won a Pulitzer Prize. That's and right. So it's uh, pretty fascinating. But the way this came up is that I said, I think I said to you, it's like, oh, I'm I'm trying to read books that are inspired by the world of Charles Dickens and his writings. And I mentioned one to you, and you said, oh, you should look at, tell us a little bit about Demon Copperhead. So, yeah, I, I made that recommendation. And I think when I made the recommendation to you, the part of the larger context was uh, my former dissertation advisor and someone who is very close to me loves Charles Dickens. And when we talk about reading, um, the things we're reading and why we're interested in them, um, Dickens and Faulkner are the ones who come up most routinely. 
And I had picked up Demon Copperhead in part because another colleague of mine at the University of Oklahoma said, this is an absolutely fantastic book. She has really impeccable taste when it comes to fiction. And we're talking about Barbara Kingsolver. Yeah, yeah. right. So um, my colleague, who she's the department chair at, at the University of Oklahoma in the English department, had texted me randomly and, and just kind of said, I know you love fiction. You need to pick up this book. Obviously, Demon Copperhead is a variation on David Copperfield. Um, similar kind of, you know, child who's orphaned, kind of down on their luck, is muddling their way through existence, except that in this particular case, the character is moving through, um, you know, this kind of like Appalachia, Virginia culture that's preoccupied with football. Um, it's a commentary on the drug use and and the the role that pharmaceuticals play, uh, the formative role that that pharmaceuticals play in that sports culture, but also outside of it as well. Um, But what captivated me and part of the reason why I recommended it to you is Kingsolver does such a magnificent job of building culture into the voice of the character himself. And so when when you're listening to Demon Copperhead, speak about his life when you're watching the character interact with other people you're getting a sense of some aspect of the community that exists in that area that regional region of of the u.s so you hear in the voice of that character is baked into it this broader culture it's a it's a community of people that oftentimes is relegated to the margins of society, broader society, um, such that the problems that they're experiencing become exacerbated because they're not recognized by the broader broader U.S. culture. So for you and I, we talk regularly about the importance of connecting with people who are relegated to the margins of society. And I think this piece of literature in particular helps us become sensitive to those stories that maybe never make it. And, and I think that's something that... Charles Dickens does well as what Barbara Kingsolver is doing in this novel is paralleling is because Dickens in his own time was able to bring the voice of the marginalized uh, to the front and to, to instead of those who came a generation before him say that are writing these uh, so I'm trying to think of the, the female author who wrote the Pride and Pride and Jane Austen so Jane there Austin, yeah. Pride and Prejudice that there are no marginalized characters in some ways in these stories. Like there are no servants in the back. You don't know. They're unnamed people. You just have these people who are part of society. Right. Uh, somebody might question that, saying that these women in these stories are often at threat in their, I mean, to their, their livelihood, their survival is threatened at some point. But, um, but Dickens raises up these marginalized people and their voices. And he's able to tell a larger story than just the characters themselves. And so in this, when we read Dickens, as with Barbara Kingsolver's novel here, that we're able to enter into a world that's more than what's just on the page. And the sense of, yeah, sure, we get to know this main character named Demon Copperhead. And on one hand, he, he, he is a, a a worthy character to encounter, but he also represents so much more than himself. And so that's the power. Part of the if we talk about the power of reading is that sense that we get to enter into the world of others. You know, it's something beyond ourselves, and to and to enter in that story is that something that you recognize as far as or you think about when you're when you're reading. I write quite a lot about a modern rhetorician named Kenneth Burke, and he has this 
really nice turn of phrase about the value of literature. He says that it's equipment for living. And when I read fiction, there's a element to it where I just like stories and I engage in the story and appreciate the difficulty of putting together something that is just, it's art, it's, it's thoughtful, it's, it takes so much time and energy to produce something that is that complicated and rich. But then there's this other component where I know that art is not separate from life and that when we read artistic works, it provides us an occasion to think more maybe capaciously about the world that we inhabit. It's designed to break apart predictable conclusions. And so, you know, I'll give a really good example. Demon, Demon Copperhead is a part of um, this football culture and the coach that you know takes him in as a part of this football culture. And we have a tendency as a culture to think we know what's going on there in part because we have so much media that tells us what we should be thinking about that. The beauty of Demon Copperhead, and part of the reason why I will return to it again, is that there aren't simple answers. And to the extent that there aren't simple answers or explanations about what's motivating anybody to engage in any particular action that unfolds, and we don't want to give away you know, too much of, of what's happening in the novel, but um, it requires us to kind of pause and say, maybe I don't know as much about this particular issue as I assumed that I did or that the media is coaching me to believe that I do. Because human beings have the ability to apply lessons in a general way from one place to the next, it, you can take that lesson and say, well, maybe I don't know a lot about the things that I assume I do. And you can use that as an occasion to have deeper conversations and maybe pause and listen instead of assert one of the things uh, you said earlier was that in the process of reading, you're actually hearing and listening at the same time. And so uh, th that's a fascinating thing because even earlier today, somebody said, I said, oh, I, I'm listening to that book on audi Audible. And, so, and they said, oh, well, then you're not really reading the book. Right. And so what do you, I mean, there's so much that's going on there. It's like as far as Tell me more what would you think about when you're reading, you're hearing and listening at the same time. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I have to admit that being the bibliophile that I am, I lived a lot of my young adult and early adult life feeling prejudiced against audiobooks in general. It wasn't necessarily that I felt like they were lesser forms, but they were not the form that captured my attention I love the idea of walking into a used bookstore and you've been in these places, the smell of old books and the surprise of discovering something on the shelf that you didn't necessarily think would be there and, you know, being able to get that at a price that's affordable and then you kind of curl up and you enter into a different world altogether. The professor that I mentioned before who is who's the um, department chair of English at the University of Oklahoma would invite me, this is when we lived in North Texas, would invite me to come up and give lectures and teach courses in rhetoric uh, with her graduate students. And anybody who's been between Denton and Norman, Oklahoma, knows that there's not a lot between those two spaces. And what's worse, that you don't get much of a radio signal, so you can just basically be sitting in the car silent for a really long time, uh, enjoying the Red Rock, but, you know, it's a lot of time to maybe be with yourself. And so I 
on a kind of whim when I when I was doing that regularly, downloaded Audible and they gave me three free audiobooks to try. I did some research um, and discovered that a book that I really wanted to read but just hadn't had time yet was available. It's uh, George Saunders' Lincoln and the Bardo, and it was getting rave reviews as an audiobook. And so I listened to it, and I think as much as I appreciate the novel as a physical book itself, the audio version is so remarkable because these characters that are quirky and weird and say the most bizarre things, they're actually voiced by David Sedaris, who's one of my favorite, you know, writers of comedy, and Nick Offerman. And so you have, and that's this cast of 100 actors, voice actors, and it just brings the book to life in a different kind of way. It's not less for it. It's just a different media. So I can say I listened to Demon Copperhead and I read other kinds of fiction physically. Uh, I, for example, um, I read, I kind of half read, half listened to The Candy House by Jennifer Egan um, simply because I have to drive from Cave Creek to Tempe and that's about a 45 minute so it's an it's it provides me an occasion to listen, but I don't think that it's productive to discriminate between the two. That's uh, often what I my drive to work is often is 45 minutes as well, and so I'm listening to books not to absorb them or to kind of consume them, but to for that very experience of uh, hearing you know hearing all of that come to life in a way that just reading on my own doesn't happen. But I'm 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 the same with you. I love to read. Uh, from the page, and I also love to listen. And I always think about the best writing captures the human voice mm -hmm. in a sense of that. And reading out something even out loud or is is an act of. Well, see, I had a professor who always used to say, um, "Writing is blood turned into ink, mm. right?" And the opposite, reading something aloud is turning ink back into blood. Mm. And so, a, the performative reading of a text is is giving it life as well. I know I, I mentioned earlier that we'd have a second book, but we uh, to talk about. But I think we gotta I, we're gonna wrap this up. We okay. got to bring you back for another conversation. Sounds but like I want to talk about then the bringing all of these insights that we've had just to our, our theological task of reading a biblical text. You know, in the sense of uh, how do you find how do you apply everything you know about reading and writing and rhetoric, all that stuff, to experiencing a biblical text. It depends. I mean, as a professor, I just got done teaching a course this past spring on methods of inquiry. And one of the things that I stress to students is the importance of having different types of methods to bring to bear on any kind of textual analysis. And it's not that you can't use a myth mixed methods approach. Like, so let's say you want to do rhetorical analysis versus historical analysis. One would focus more on the argumentative upshot, let's say, um, for an ought to an audience versus just kind of understanding the broader historical significance. Those two things can blend in productive ways, but you need to, in order to blend them productively, you have to know that they can be used in certain kinds of separate ways. So, you know, I was talking with a friend yesterday and we were talking about the importance of when we read texts to understand that texts are set in context and that helps us understand the argument, argumentative inflection points differently. And so for me, when people ask me to weigh in on theological issues and how do I interpret the, this particular passage from the Bible and why, 
as a trained rhetorician, one of the things I always try to do is understand something about the historical context when that's available. But then, you know this, we talk about this all the time, there's an etymological context, there's a linguistic context, there's translation components that carry and haunt the, the, the text itself. And so I guess the best thing that I would say is that if, if Christians want to become better readers, they need to stop seeing books as like a one-to-one ratio, like this is the input and this is the necessary output and intentionality is the thing that connects the two, and to develop a more dimensional view of how texts are produced, recognizing that texts, like a lot of things, travel through time. Uh, as they travel through time, they go into unexpected places and they get haunted by those places and they haunt those places. And as they interact with new people, there are different perspectives and different linguistic elements that get routed through the text itself. And the more meticulous we can be about learning about a text travel, I think the richer our reading experience will be as a whole. Um, but yeah, in, in one of my in a book that I wrote with a colleague that was published this past year, we talk about the importance of seeing text as strata, as you know, like we were both imagining kind of the um, the experience of going into the Grand Canyon for the first time and seeing the layers of history, you know, carved into the rock. Texts are like that as well, and you know, to say a, te- a text is one thing. Or another thing is a little bit like saying the Grand Can, like the experience of the Grand Canyon, can only be you saw a big hole in the ground. So I'm always deeply suspicious of interpretations that are reductive. We do need to reduce certain kinds of textual elements in order to perform a perspective, but we need to make sure that reducing doesn't lead to reduction. And so. We develop throughout our lives. Hopefully we continue to develop reading strategies and ways of reading that expand. A, yeah. a text, as we as we encounter a text, it's, it is an encounter. And like meeting somebody again and again throughout one's life, you encounter that person at different stages of life and different uh, different things. And so a text becomes ever can possibly become ever new in a certain way. We'll definitely have to continue our conversation. Thank you for joining us here for this episode of the Out of the Park podcast series. And we are focusing on reading. Thanks for joining us at our Out of the Park podcast series. If you like this program and would like to check out more, go to our website at www.framparkcenter.org.